by now your Bible probably falls open to Hebrews on its own. I hope it does. But if it didn't, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue our great study. As a nation, we rightly honor those who die in the service of others. We, of course, honor military heroes and fallen police officers and firemen, among others, who have paid the ultimate price. We understand that death is the highest price a person can pay for another human being. And I want us to think for a moment as we begin about that concept of dying for someone else from a few different angles. Imagine for a moment the President of the United States passing through a large crowd, shaking hands, greeting individual citizens, doing the things that politicians do. And of course, on every side of him are Secret Service uh, uh, operatives who are there for the, the goal of scanning that crowd and looking for potential threats for his protection. And let's say that suddenly one of those officers notices a man with a gun and he sounds the alarm. And so all of those officers in unison began to huddle around the president using their bodies as shields to try and protect him. But then astonishingly, as the gunman raises his gun, the president pushes through his security guard and throws himself in front of those officers taking the bullet himself. Now consider another scenario. Let's pretend there's a righteous king ruling his country. And he's known throughout his country as a man of wisdom, as a man of kindness and of generosity towards his citizens. But despite all of that, there remains this secret underground group of revolutionaries who are bent on his harm. They have organized themselves underground with an assassination attempt on his life. But the plan becomes known to the king through one of his officers. And so these rebels are apprehended and they're sentenced to death by firing squad for their treason. And they are lined up one after another, waiting their fate. But to the shock and horror of the country, just before the first shot rings out, the king bolts in front of the first man to be killed and takes the bullet himself. Now finally and thirdly, imagine with me for a moment an almighty God, a God who has no beginning, who simply always was, a God who is characterized by perfect holiness, a God more beautiful and glorious than our minds can comprehend. And this God determines that he will create a race of men and, and he will bring this race of men to know him and to enjoy him and to see his glory. And he creates mankind and places him in a lush garden which provides everything that he needs for his physical sustenance. But that race of men chooses to rebel against this wonderful and glorious God. They choose instead to disobey him, to spurn his good gifts. And rather than seeing all the abundance in the garden that he's provided, they focus their attention on the one thing he's forbidden. They choose to ignore the warning of God that those who eat of that tree will surely die. And they do it. They do the one thing that God says they must not do, they cannot do. But instead of destroying that race of men that he created as they deserved, he chooses instead 
to send his own eternal son to become one of them, to take on human flesh and to offer his perfect life in the place of those rebellious created beings. You see, there is no other sacrifice that compares to what Christ has done for us, Christian. Even the greatest of human sacrifices, the most noble, the most audacious, the most unthinkable cannot compare to what God has done in Christ to take on flesh and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the author of Hebrews is concerned that we'd never grow tired of hearing that truth, that we never underestimate both the necessity and the value of the death of Christ. And so it is in the midst of our study, he brings us again and again to this great idea. It's the same idea that you first learned of when you came to know Christ. And yet it's the same idea that has hopefully dumbfounded you every day since that God would die for a sinner like you and like me. The author of Hebrews says, we have to understand the necessity of the death of Christ and the supreme value of the death of Christ. And we'll do that again in our passage today in Hebrews chapter nine. Remember the theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ, specifically in this section from chapter eight through halfway through chapter 10, we're looking at Jesus's superior covenant and sacrifice. We're unpacking this grand theme that Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. We've looked at the first uh, three and part of the fourth of five segments that make up chapter nine. Let's read together Hebrews nine. We're gonna read verses one to 14 for context. That's where the ground we've already covered. Today we'll be looking at verses uh, 16 to 22, but let's read verses one to 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, 
that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now in those verses, we have the first three segments. We've been over this, so I won't belabor the point, but I do wanna just remind you, segment one was the description of the earthly tabernacle. Segment two, the message of the earthly tabernacle that a better way to God was needed and a better sacrifice. Segment three, the superiority of Christ's redemption. That's verses 11 to 14. He died once for all, securing that eternal redemption for us. And that brought us last week to verse 15, which introduced the fourth segment, the mediator of the new covenant, verses 15 to 22. We only just dipped our toe into that last week with verse 15, but, and we started with the implication. The implication, remember, was Christ's mediation secures our inheritance. Christ's mediation secures our inheritance. That's verse 15. Let's read verse 15 one more time um, as we enter into our passage this morning. Last week we saw this. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Last week, we discovered again the wonderful truth that by his death, Jesus secured for us this great eternal inheritance that is ours in him. And it's an inheritance of infinite value. Let me just remind you quickly, I'm gonna put on the screen again, just that list that I showed you at the end of the lesson last time on just some of the things that are included in this inheritance that Christ has purchased for us. The forgiveness of sin, the clothing of Christ's righteousness, restored fellowship with God, eternal life, citizenship in God's kingdom, adoption as God's spiritual children, Baptism and filling with the Holy Spirit, union with Christ by the Spirit, rewards for obedience, illumination of God's word, membership in Christ's church, ongoing sanctification and future glorification, among other things, are included in this great picture of in our inheritance that we call eternal redemption. Christ secured all of those things for us, his people. Now, as I mentioned to you last time, that was really just the first part of this segment. That's the implication of the things that we'd already studied. But we also have the illustration, which is coming next, followed by the argumentation. So implication, illustration, argumentation. In order for us to see this, Let's read our passage. I know we've read several verses, but that just sets the context for our verses today. We're gonna start now in verse 16, picking up where verse 15 left off, down through verse 22. Verse 16 reads, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity 
be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it's never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now we saw the implication last week, the fact that the death of Christ has secured for us this inheritance. But now verses 16 through 22 continue to explain this. It's gonna expound upon that implication. And the first way he's gonna expound upon that is through an illustration, by showing us through a word picture why this is true. This is verses 16 and 17. And the illustration is simply this, human wills are activated by death. Human wills are activated by death. Verse 16 begins with the word for, which as always causes us to ask why it's there. What's the word therefore? It's here because this illustration ties right back into verse 15, describing this fact that it's through the death of Christ that we receive this inheritance. And honestly, here in the New American Standard text, which is what I'm reading from, it's a little bit different, difficult to follow his argument. The reason for that, I won't go into the, to the depths of that, but the basic reason is that the translators who translated this for us are committed to not only translating it word for word, but to the best of their ability, translating it in the same flow as the Greek text which is why we use the New American Standard. It's, it's great, we want them to be committed to that. But obviously you speak Greek in a different way than you speak English. So sometimes that's why when you're reading the New American Standard, the point is hard to follow. It's because it's using the same structure as the Greek language. So what I wanna do here is read to you from the ESV. The ESV is also committed to a literal translation, but they changed the order to a more natural way for an English speaker to speak. So listen to the ESV here on verses 15 to 17. It'll help us tie this together. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but they changed the order of verse 15. They do that on purpose because it helps us see the flow into verse 16. Essentially, he's just expounding in verse 16, particularly on the issue of, of death. That theme of death is gonna run through the rest of these verses. He's highlighting to us the necessity of Christ's death and the value of Christ's death. And so here, he's, he's, when he uses the word for, he's pointing specifically back to the fact that Christ died to secure this inheritance. Now there's one other translation issue I need to mention, otherwise we're gonna be confused. 
in the New American Standard in verse 16, notice it says where there is a covenant. In the ESV, it says where there is a will, as in the last will and testament that a person would make, a living will. Again, there's a lot behind that, but the basic reason is the same Greek word is used for covenant that's used for will. And the only way to know which one it means is the context. And I believe in context here, the ESV gets it right. I think he's giving us a simple illustration of how human wills work. If you have a will, you understand this. All he's saying here is that when you have a will, even though you've promised to give an inheritance to someone else in that will, it benefits them zero as long as you're alive. Until you die, they can't have access to that inheritance. Only upon your death are they the beneficiaries of that will. That's all that he's saying here. For where a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Because the death is what activates that will. Now, this is perfectly clear. This is a really simple illustration, which is the point of illustrations, is it not? Illustrations are to take big truths and bring them down to the bottom shelf to make them very simple for us to understand. That's exactly what he does here. He says, for a will is valid only when men are dead, for it's never in force while the one who made it lives. So here's the simple illustration again. A will doesn't become active until the person who made it passes away. Only then will the person named in the will receive the inheritance. Now that simple illustration is meant to highlight a big truth. So how does this simple illustration tie back into verse 15? Again, remember these two words, necessity and significance. We see the necessity of the death of Christ. He had to die in the same way that a person has to die for the will to be effective. And the significance of the death of Christ. By dying, we get the inheritance. That's the idea. We have now become the recipients of this wonderful, spiritual, eternal inheritance because Christ died for us. And he had to. It was required in order for us to receive it. But... There's something here that's unique about the spiritual inheritance that we have in Christ. Understand that when we use human illustrations to describe something about God, they inevitably break down at some point because God's bigger than our minds can conceive. And so we get to a point and say, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But wait, what about that? Well, think about this. When it comes to a human will and a human inheritance, that process for us, if we're in a healthy relationship with that person, is very bittersweet, is it not? Because in order for me to get that inheritance, it necessarily means I've had to lose the person that I love. And in any normal human relationship, even among unbelievers, we instinctively understand, because God's built it within us, if we're being honest, that person matters so much more than their stuff. I would rather have him or her in my life than any inheritance that he or she could leave. And so human wills and human inheritance is this bittersweet process. Not so when it comes to our inheritance in Christ. Think about this, for the Christian, 
On the one hand, that principle is exponentially greater in Christ. That principle of, of the loss, that you are more valuable than your stuff. When it comes to the Christian in Christ, there is nothing more valuable to us than the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want any inheritance that doesn't include Jesus Christ when it comes to my internal inheritance. I don't care about the streets of gold. I don't care about a mansion over the hilltop. You can keep it all. Give me Jesus right? And so for us, when we talk about this eternal inheritance, we, we can't have the same situation we have in a human relationship because no matter what he gives me, if he's not there, it's a hollow inheritance. Is this not what Paul says to the Philippians, verse uh, seven and eight of chapter three, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view, sur, view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Think about Paul as he uh, speaks earlier in the same book about his predicament of, of potentially being executed. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. All of this highlights for us that for the Christian, our greatest treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The greatest joy of our salvation is not the golden streets or the mansion over the hilltop, it is Christ Jesus himself. And when we arrive on heaven's shore, the question that we will all be eager to ask is not where do I move in, it's where is my savior? Where is the one who gave his life for me? I wanna see Jesus. I'm excited to see all my relatives that have gone on before me. I'm excited to meet the saints of old. But prior to all of that, where is Jesus? And for us as believers, we understand that this is where the illustration of a human will breaks down. Because while it is true, that Jesus Christ on one Friday afternoon hung on a cross, naked, shamed, dying for sin. And while it is true that he surely died and was buried in a borrowed tomb, and while it is truly sure that on Saturday he remained in that tomb, at the break of dawn on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And what that means for us, Christian, is that we get this grand double blessing of the great inheritance that he ushers in by his death, but we also get Christ forever, that we will enjoy that inheritance with him in his presence every day for the rest of our eternal lives. Now that is something to look forward to. If that doesn't get your heart revved up this morning, check your pulse, Christian. The thought of this grand inheritance and the one who secured it for us forever. And so it is, this simple illustration highlights for us both the necessity of the death of Christ, but also the supreme value of the death of Christ. 
But he goes on again now to the argumentation. This is now turning our attention back to the contrast that he's been walking us through this entire time. The contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Remember, he's told us several times the old covenant was a shadow pointing forward to the substance of Christ that was to come. And so how is it that we learn this principle of the necessity of the death of Christ and the value of the death of Christ by looking at the old covenant? Well, that's this last section, verses 18 to 22. And here's the argumentation. The old covenant was inaugurated by death. The old covenant was inaugurated by death, verses 18 to 22. Verse 18 begins with the word, therefore. Literally, it's for which reason. This word points back again, I believe, to verse 15, still talking about this issue of death. There's, there's another uh, important truth here that he wants us to see about this key concept of the death of Christ. The illustration shows us that his, de his death activated our eternal inheritance, but here he's gonna show us how the old covenant pointed forward to the death of Christ to bring in the new covenant. Verse 18 again, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. The first covenant mentioned here is the same covenant we've been looking at for weeks. It's, this is the, the covenant made between the people of Israel through Moses. And specifically, he's highlighting the fact that the, the inauguration of that covenant was on the basis of death. And to do that, he's gonna use the word blood. Over and over again, we're gonna read the word blood, but when you read the word blood here, think the word death. He's simply using blood as a word picture to think about that sacrificial death that inaugurated this covenant. But when we think about the old covenant, death was necessary for its inauguration, yes, but really for its continuation, this constant covenant of death. These animal sacrifices, of course, are what's in view. But even though these were animal sacrifices, they always pointed to a greater reality that went beyond that animal. The author now reminds us, this would have been familiar to the Jews, not as familiar to us, but it reminds us of that day, that sacred day when, Jesus, when, when Moses, excuse me, inaugurated the old covenant. What did that look like? He's gonna take us back to Exodus 24. You don't have to turn there just yet, but Exodus 24 is where we have the account of the inauguration of the old covenant. And he's gonna summarize it in his own words here, beginning in verse 19. He says, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, we'll stop there. Every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law. This happens in Exodus 24, verse three. Let me read this to you. It says, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the first thing Moses does is he stands in front of the people, picture all the people of Israel gathered together. Moses reads the law and the people say, amen, we will do that. We will bind ourselves to that covenant. Then Moses is directed by God to perform a, a ceremony, 
a ceremony in which this covenant would now be inaugurated and effectively active for the people. And that's what he describes next here in Hebrews. Look back at verse 19. So first of all, he speaks the words of the law, but afterwards he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Now, some commentators really uh, debate this passage because this account, some of the details differ slightly from the details in Exodus 24. For example, the author here includes both goats and bulls. In Exodus 24, only bulls are mentioned. Here in Hebrews, he says that both the book and the people were sprinkled with blood. Exodus simply mentions the people. But understand when you just step back and look at this a little deeper, what the author is doing is he's really adding commentary, uh, expanding. He's not certainly not contradicting anything in Exodus. He's adding commentary from the Jewish tradition at the time that gives a fuller account of how this took place. And we know that because of the writings of Josephus. Josephus is a name you've probably heard before. He was a historian, contemporary at this time, a Jewish historian. And he writes for us the same same description as the author of Hebrews of this inauguration of the old covenant and describes it the same way. And the Holy Spirit inspired our, our author to include these expanded details for us here. So it's just a a commentary, adding some color to what took place there, showing us that there were goats and bulls involved and even the book itself was sprinkled with this blood. Let me just read to you the account quickly in Exodus and then we'll bring this together and see its significance. Exodus 24 verses four to eight describe what took place that day in this way. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, essentially, the point here is to remind us of this solemn assembly in which this covenant was inaugurated by blood sacrifice. God had promised to be their people. They had promised to be his people by obeying his word, but there was always the problem of sin, wasn't there? How was this gonna happen when you have a sinful people? Their sin meant a death had to take place. If this covenant was going to be inaugurated, it had to be on the basis of a death. In this case, animal blood was allowed to substitute for human blood, but the picture symbolized by that animal blood was crystal clear. The people had earned the judgment of God and they could not come before God without sacrificial blood. An innocent sacrifice had to stand in their place. It reminds us that a right relationship with God is impossible without a death. 
That's the idea, it's bringing us back to the necessity of death, sacrificial death to bring us to God. Here, there was this ceremony where hyssop, which is essentially a branch from a plant was taken and crimson wool was tied to the end of that. And that became sort of an an implement to sprinkle the blood. It was dipped into the bowl of blood and then sprinkled on whatever was being consecrated. This happened throughout the old covenant. It's how uh, this ceremonial cleansing was done. But don't miss the big picture here. It's not really to get lost in the details of those things. It's to remind us that the old covenant required blood sacrifice. The terms of the covenant couldn't be activated without sacrificial death. And that leads the author then to this summary statement. And really it's here that he focuses our attention on his primary point. Verse 22, and according to the law, One may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now let the severity of those words ring in your ear for a moment. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is impossible without blood. The reason he says almost, just quickly, is because the law made provisions for poor people that couldn't afford an animal to sacrifice to give another sacrifice. But clearly, even those were to point to the animal sacrifices to show us that blood had to be shed. That's the reason he says almost. Now, as I stepped back and thought on this this week, it, it dawned on me that it's really counterintuitive for us to think about blood as a means of making something clean, isn't it? If you get blood on your shirt, do you consider your shirt to be clean or dirty, right? When we get blood on things, some of us have a real problem with that, right? We're not real excited about having blood on us and it doesn't bring the the idea of being cleaner than we were before. But the fact that the author says that things had to be cleansed by blood, that there was no cleansing apart from blood, reminds us that the kind of cleansing that concerns the Lord has nothing to do with how clean our physical bodies are. It has everything to do with our soul. And the blood sprinkled on those people and sprinkled on the book and sprinkled on all the implements that would be used was a physical reminder that you cannot be spiritually clean, soul clean, apart from sacrificial death. And that blood that was left spattered, the stain of the blood was a constant reminder, death is required to be made right in the eyes of God. Understand, that's why the word blood is used over and over again. The blood is just a picture of the life that was given to provide that blood. This is why he says here, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. When the author says that here, I'm convinced that he was thinking of one very particular Old Testament scripture, and it's this. It's Leviticus 17:11. This is one that you ought to know and log away. This is an, a key Old Testament text. It says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement." Now that's a 
a little bit of a poetic way to say that. What's he saying? Essentially, this is what this means. It's not about the blood itself. It's not as if the physical droplets of blood had some magical components within the blood. It's what the blood represented. When you bleed something out, obviously it dies. The idea is the reason that God accepted the blood sprinkled on those objects is because it pointed back to the life that was given to produce the blood. The same is true, we talk about the blood of Christ. What we mean by that, it's a word picture to talk about the death of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ. The cleansing from sin that comes for the believer is not about the physical blood sprinkling on your body, it is about the death of a sacrificial innocent lamb in the case of the Old Testament, Christ in the case of of us given in our stead. Now, why was a death required specifically? Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning. What did God say would be the penalty for sin? Genesis 2, 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. He told us from the very beginning before we ever sinned, listen, the penalty for sin is going to be death. And even in the garden, After the very first sin, it brought death. Now you may be thinking, yeah, but Adam and Eve didn't die, at least not for a long time. They did eventually die, but they didn't die in the garden. Well, they didn't die, but on that very day, the first death in human history, in the history of the world, took place. And it's described for us really almost as a passing comment in Genesis 3.21 says, the Lord God made garments of sin, of skin, sorry, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. Now, where do skins come from? Maybe you have an animal, a coonskin hat or something like that. It comes from an animal. The idea is that God killed these animals and made skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. There's a whole message there for us and someday we'll go down that rabbit trail. But what I want you to see is that from the very first sin, death entered the world immediately. That was the first time Adam and Eve had ever seen anything die. Think about that. A a, a picture in front of them of, of, of our sin has brought this. And they would experience it in a greater way with their own son being murdered by the hands of his brother. Death after death after death, death. This this creates the pattern of animal sacrifice. Why do you think it was that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not the sacrifice of Cain? Go back and look at what they brought. Abel brought an animal sacrifice, which was what God had prescribed. Why does Noah make it immediately an animal sacrifice to God after he's off of the ark? Why does Abraham and that, that covenant become inaugurated by animal sacrifice? So on and so forth, we see death, death, death for sin all of it pointing ahead ultimately to Christ. And we see it here in the old covenant as well. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And what I want you to see is that the author is masterfully pointing our attention always to Christ. Christ is never too far from what the author is saying. Even though we're talking about the blood of calves and goats again, I want you to see specifically what he says. He brings us back to this point in which Moses, picture Moses now. Moses is standing in front of the people holding a bowl of blood. He's holding a bowl of blood to inaugurate the old covenant. And this is what he says. 
This is verse 20 of Hebrews 9. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. This is the blood of the covenant. Now, I believe the author wants us in our mind's eye to see another image here, specifically from the ministry of Christ. When you read that and you picture Moses there saying these words, does it bring to mind another key moment in the life and ministry of Christ? Listen to Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now I know we've read this a lot of times, okay? But I want you to picture yourself sitting there, the Passover meal that you've done with your family since you were a little kid, you know the drill. Jesus stops, breaks the bread, but he says, that is my body. And then he takes the cup of wine and giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, why? For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Moses holds the blood, says this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant. The new covenant too had to be inaugurated with blood, but better blood, better sacrifices. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. He was signaling on that night and that Passover meal that just as Moses inaugurated the first covenant with blood, I am now inaugurating the new covenant with my own blood. And it will be for what? For the forgiveness of sins. And so it is that the author says here, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17, 11 spoke obviously of the blood being sacrificed there under the old covenant, but it pointed far ahead to the blood that would be sacrificed by Christ himself. And because he offered not the blood of animals, but his own precious blood, he purchased for us, as the author has said, eternal redemption. And so we see the benefit and we see the value of the death of Christ. Let me ask you, if you're here this morning, have you personally been covered with the precious atoning blood of Jesus Christ? Have you personally come to a place in which you have recognized your sin and that your sin makes you guilty before God and that the only thing that can make you right with God again is sacrificial death. Blood has to be shed for you and it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the very son of God who lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and rose again from the grave. The Bible says if you will humble yourself, repenting of your sins and put putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone, understanding that his life, death, and resurrection is your only hope of being made right with God, then you will be saved, eternally redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, as John said, who takes away the sin of the world. Not an animal sacrifice, not a temporary covering, but forever. If you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the only way to the Father. Turn to him today and be saved. But if you are already in Christ, let me just encourage you as we 
close our time to let these things affect your own heart. And first of all, I wanna encourage you to enjoy your inheritance in Christ. Enjoy your inheritance in Christ. You know, so many times we talk about following Christ and obedience to Christ in a way that makes it seem like a chore. We don't understand that to follow Christ, to know Christ, to obey the word of Christ is to bring joy into the Christian life. This is our gift. This is a benefit that we have to know him and to follow him, to read his word and to obey it. This is not to earn anything from him. It is because of what he has already earned for us. Think about some of the gifts that are already ours in this temporal life because we belong to Christ. Surely the full fulfillment of our inheritance won't come until we're with him in glory. But think of what's already yours, Christian. Fellowship with God, wholehearted worship of God, a clean conscience before God, joy in Christ that supersedes your circumstances, understanding of the word of God, the enjoyment of the people of God, spiritual gifts to serve the people of God, the indwelling of the spirit to empower us to obey the word of God and confidence, a real confidence and assurance that the very moment we step out of this earthly existence, we will be with him forever to carry us through the difficult days in a fallen world. Let me ask you, do you live a life that testifies to the inheritance that is yours in Christ? Does it show up in your resolve to, to walk in, in joy even in the midst of the difficult days of life? Does it show up in your resolve to follow Christ, to turn from sin even when it's difficult, even when it costs you dearly? Understand, this is not just a duty for the Christian. This is our joy to be able to know Christ and to serve Christ. Secondly and finally, Enjoy your forgiveness in Christ. Enjoy it. As believers, we're those who've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb so that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see you through the lens of your sin and all the things that you've done wrong. He sees you through the lens of his son and all that his son has done right, all that Christ has done for you. You understand what a gift that is. Rejoice in that gift. Rejoice in, in the freedom of a cleansed conscience. Rejoice in the confidence that you're right with God on the basis of the blood of his son, which means because it's on the basis of him, it can never be taken away. These things should change us. They should change the way we speak and the way we think, the way we live. Everything about us is touched by these realities of this great inheritance and this great atonement that is ours today. And we all turn our eyes again to our Savior, the security of our inheritance and the author of our forgiveness. This is the message of Hebrews this morning. Let's go to him now with a word of prayer. Lord God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for Christ, for the clarity with which we see the benefits of Christ that have been given to us as his people not because of who we are, but in spite of ourselves. Thank, thank you for the gift of being washed with the blood of Christ. Thank you for the inheritance that we get to enjoy because we are his. Help us, Lord, not to live lives that are unmarked 
by these truths, but help us to, to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. We ask it in his name and his name alone. Amen.